Hi, I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Chris Hughes, the co-founder of Facebook and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. In addition to his work at the Economic Security Project, Chris is a senior advisor at the Roosevelt Institute, a progressive think tank working to reimagine the rules of the economy. He has led the Economic Security Project's work to rewrite federal and state tax codes to create a monthly tax credit for Americans most in need, a policy which would create a guaranteed income for working people in the United States. Before he began his work on economic issues, Chris co-founded Facebook as a student at Harvard and later led Barack Obama's digital organizing campaign for president. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey, Jill. Good. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So, okay, here's this first question is is a really, um, it's a very personal question for me. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, 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 I thought you were going. (laughs) (laughs) Not for you. I read so I read that you were a French history and literature major at Harvard. Yes. And I have a high school age son who is, you know, creeping up on starting to think about college. And he gives me such a hard time because I was an English major. Although I worked <laughs> in tech my entire career. And so I'm wondering if you could, this is purely for my sake, could you just help me help him understand? why a liberal arts major was helpful to you when you got out oh into the real world. I'm feeling a lot of relief because I thought you were going to force me to choose a side. <laughs> <laughs> Never. English Never. or French, uh, parents right. or child. Um, <laughs> uh, why to do – the liberal arts are great. I mean, um, there are so many different reasons to – well, first of all, I think people should major in what they enjoy. So yes. for some people, that's going to be the sciences. For some people, it's going to be engineering. For some people, it's be English or French history or what have you. Um, because when you study things that you enjoy, you have a lot more energy for it. And I think you're generally better at it. Um, so uh, so I think that – I guess that's my, my most uh, – my strongest feeling. For those who enjoy the liberal arts um, – all kinds of reasons to study it. It helps you see the world in a different way. It can uh, give you all different kinds of context or multiple layers of meaning on small things that happen in the news or big things that are happening politically. It gives you a deeper appreciation of history. And I think it can, um, uh, particularly when you understand more of these uh, uh, dimensions, I think it can make you a better citizen, better parent, yeah. better uh, better person, uh, better friend. Um, so yeah, but I don't, I like, I like that. Yeah, no, no. Well, it was more so that, um, you know, as I was reading about you and preparing for this conversation, it, it seems to me that you understand people. And even when you had founded Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, it, it sounded like you took on responsibilities around um, communicating and marketing and thinking about user experience. And so and I, so this is what I was trying to explain to him, but I'm curious about um, that aspect of how you look at the world and how that's, how did that impact your early days at Facebook? And then how did that, you eventually ended up helping the Obama campaign, which was you know, critical, your work there. and. and how, why are you good at understanding how people work and knowing what they need in order to help then them gain momentum around what they're doing? Well, I don't know um, how good I necessarily am at it. I mean, I was, um, how should I put this uh, somewhat politely? I was the non-techie uh, engineer. Uh, I think I was the least likely to be called a nerd, although we were all pretty geeky um in that room (laughs) so i think by process of elimination that that was the mantle i took up um i do think though that you're you're getting at a at a really important point which is that facebook or any of these other technological systems are human systems they're social systems and that um a technology is only useful or interesting to the extent that it fulfills um uh, certain human needs and and i think um we tend to think about technology often as if it has a mind of its own um right. and overlook the fact that it's all about how we 
use it. So, I mean, in the earliest days of Facebook, it was, it was a different internet. I mean, it was um, 16 years ago at this point and uh, people didn't share a lot of information about themselves uh, publicly uh, online. There wasn't the same kind of social patterns around who you, uh, who you connected with online. It was just a, it was a different, um, it's a different model, a different place. I, I guess what I'm saying is if you shared much info, a lot of folks thought that you were trying to get a date. Uh, and that was yeah. pretty much it. Um, and a right. big, big realization that we had in the early days was that people wanted to do all the things online. They do in person. They, you know, it's sort of like going to a party. You want to present a certain version of your identity. Uh, you wanted validation. You wanted to connect and see who and what other people we're doing, uh, and when you do it, did it in a more trusted environment. Because if you remember, it was just college kids to start. It was just yeah. specifically kids at the campus that you were on. People were more likely to um, to share, and so that trusting. that was a fundamental. Yeah, that was a yeah. core insight early on, which you know is almost invisible in today's platform and also in today's cultural and social environment. But um, back in that period, I think it was really formative. Well, so I think it's so interesting too, that some of, I mean, you did some very, very early work around social media and the internet and politics. And if I understand it correctly, you had graduated from Harvard, you were working at Facebook and Barack Obama's campaign came knocking. And they convinced you to leave Facebook to work on his campaign for presidency. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and was it hard to make that decision? And what, what was it like to, I mean, you built some of the kind of pillars of, of how uh, the internet is now used in campaigns. And so, so I'm curious about that whole experience. Well, I was pretty restless. So it was uh, 2007, Facebook had been going for about three years and, uh, I was in Palo Alto working on um, what's called product development, how the site worked and, and how it was used. And I, I mean, I liked what I was doing, but to be totally honest, I know this might seem sort of crazy looking back. I, uh, I was, I was restless to do something that I found more, more meaningful uh, and more and more impactful. Um, and Obama was, uh, was a change candidate, you know, yeah. he was, uh, he was at the time the underdog uh, senator from Illinois who was challenging uh, much of the Democratic establishment yeah. and, um, and importantly wanted to do it in a way that was not just raising a lot of money and throwing up ads on TV. Yeah. And that was the real um, uh, difference to me was that he had a movement-based orientation to politics and he, and, and in the campaign itself. He wanted to use technology to help build and grow that movement. I didn't really know how we were going to do it. I definitely don't think that uh, the campaign or he as a candidate had uh, all this figured out at the start. We were all experimenting as we as we went. We learned we learned a lot. The biggest piece of which was that when people are, are excited about a leader and you give them the tools to organize their family and friends, um, they will do amazing things and that that basic observation um is still true in this election cycle where you've got you know hundreds of thousands millions of people doing everything from writing letters to making phone calls to uh committing to be poll workers um in order to uh in order to uh, see the uh see the election go yeah. in the way that they uh they want so it's uh you know, again, the technology, though, was the enabling factor for very social and human excitement about who Obama um, was and, how, and what he could be. Yeah. Well, there was a line that was in a Fast Company article about you this years ago where that said Obama's belief in the power of real people to be agents of change dovetailed with his own meaning, your own. And um, that struck me as very interesting as I was reading about the things you've done can you, including the work that you're now doing on economic development and guaranteed income, can you tell me a little bit about what you believe is the power of real people? And is the government giving 
them or us everything we need to achieve the possibilities in that power? That is a very big question. I will try to. No. Uh, I only to ask big. Answer. I ask very small questions in order to have a conversation <laughs> with my son, and I ask very big questions when when I'm about to head into something I'm really excited about. Well, that's why. <laughs> that's why I'm here, and that's why I love what you're what you uh, what you're doing too. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think. Listen, I think that there are two competing strands of. Um, at least two competing strands of moral philosophy uh, in the United States. One is uh, sort of a bleak Calvinism, a worry that we can't trust um, one another, and we need to be wary um, uh, all the time. Uh, the other is a more communitarian kind of uh, philosophy that puts the emphasis on collaboration and thinks that when we're at our best, it's when we come together to not only to support each other, but to... Um, but to think, uh, think creatively and um, combine our powers. So these two strands are, I think, as old as the, the country itself, and they're still, um, they're still with us today. And unsurprisingly, I very much uh, subscribe and uh, participate in the second outlook, the, yeah. the, the outlook that believes that communities are um, what, um, what make us free. So uh, when it comes to both the Obama campaign, I think where you're headed with the work on the guaranteed income that I do now, I think that um, for the most part, we can, uh, we can trust people to um, do the right thing. And what is the right thing? And, and what, by that, I mean to take care of themselves, take care of their families, participate in their communities in a way that adds value and uh, takes care of others, that recognizes each of our responsibilities um, uh, in the in the world, and um, I think history and empirical evidence uh, bear that out. In other words, people mostly want to work. People mostly want to be a, be active uh, active citizens. There are certainly some exceptions to the rule, but um, when we assume that that people have that kind of creativity and ingenuity then we can build a whole set of policies that that make it easier for people to be themselves and so it was a kind of movement based bottoms up energy in obama world that powered that campaign and that assumption was i think a big thing that um behind building that social network the way that we did we didn't tell people yeah. hey go here go there to um uh, for the most part, to elect the president. Instead, we said, hey, here are a few ideas of what you might do. Now you organize your own event. And hundreds of thousands of events were um, were held. And it's a similar idea behind the, or at least a similar philosophy behind um, the guaranteed income. Yeah. Well, so before we go there, the, you so you built what what was called my BO. Is that right? <laughs> well, my, my, <laughs> my Barack, Barack Obama, Obama is preferred. Yeah. <laughs> One of the articles I read had had truncated it. Yeah, we said my bow. We said my bow was like the... my bow. Okay, my yeah. bow. Right. So, and then that was that was launched alongside BarackObama.com. So, how and, and and like you're saying, it was a set of tools to allow organizers to kind of amplify everything that they were doing. You had just come from Facebook, which had to have been one of the hottest places to work at the time. Um, how, what, who built the software for you and how, like, how was that? I'm just curious about like the nitty gritty details of building out that team and were you able to attract great talent? Is there, is there great talent building software for government? I, I haven't run into that. Um, how was that whole experience? Uh, well, a few things. I think, um, again, just to set the scene, Facebook was a minor social network then. It was a really competitive, um, environment. I mean, it was, it was one of a few, but MySpace was the dominant player. Okay. Um, uh, Friendster was very, very much still viable. Twitter would be created right around this time um, uh, and really become popular in 2008. LiveJournal was, uh, you know, it, so it was a very competitive environment. So um, not the same world that existed even just a few years later where Facebook had, uh, had really, um, uh, increased its its size, power, and uh, and purview. Okay. So, uh, but in terms of the the software that we built, you know, when I came on the campaign, we were work, uh, working with a 
a set of software tools that came from a third-party vendor, and they were clunky, but you know what? They did the trick. I spent hmm. a lot of time being frustrated that, uh, that we would have downtimes or that uh, we couldn't just make what felt like pretty soft, pretty simple software changes. But the more time that elapsed between the campaign and, um, or the more time went by afterward, you know, the more context you get, which is like, it wasn't, it wasn't how flashy the events module was that was getting people to organize those events. You know, it was the, I mean, you needed to have it, it needed to work. These basics were important, but um, the software uh, development in that phase um, was um, was less important. Now that was a campaign, and that is very different than software that government has to uh, build and provide for the American people to work very well. And so that that um, those experiences on the campaign of having it sort of be kludged together, if you will, and just having it work, being okay. Uh, that kind of uh, approach to software development doesn't work with government. Right. And in fact, when software fails and government is the provider, I mean, obviously the the initial downtimes with the Obamacare website um, are uh, maybe the, mes- the best known example. That's a failure to to the American people, and has to be prevented at um, at uh, all cost. So um, the the I think uh, you know there there are big differences there are big differences between um, between the two. Yeah, that, that's that's a very good point. Do, if you think about the campaigns that are happening now, and do you think about your experience, has have campaigns come a long way with technology? Do you think they're using technology to the the kind of deepest extent that they could or do you do you see things kind of sitting back that that maybe you would be doing if you were still helping to run campaigns and using technology you know i don't follow it quite as closely as i did before my husband um uh, runs a digital uh resistance organization called stand up america so to be honest he is in the trenches and uh would be uh would give you a better answer than i probably am able to give <laughs> Today to the question, but I will say when you look at the presidential campaigns, the big ones, the 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 big trend over time is for more of the work to be about managing and organizing uh, external platforms than it is about what you're going to build on, you know, JoeBiden.com, for instance. Yep. You know, the idea right. of building an on-site social network on a presidential campaign website. It's, it's that itself is a bit outdated. You can do most everything you need to do with smart management across um, other social platforms. Um, uh, texting has just revolutionized um, campaigning in a sense. Um, mm. And so that has become important. And then where you do need specific tools, like for instance, I think one of the the biggest things this cycle was the, um, at least on um, on the uh, on the left, was the number of people who are writing good old-fashioned handwritten letters. Yeah. Now they're using technology to find through tools like Vote Forward and other things. They're using technology to find voters who don't always show up at the polls, and they're writing letters that. Um, uh, I did this too. I wrote some letters, and I wrote letters, and you 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 put them in the mail, and it's. Um, it's a, not a very technological experience when you receive when, the, when you receive it. It's a very kind of human, um, tactile, almost uh, analog experience. But technology is what makes it possible right. because you know you you have a sense of who who needs to um, who needs to get these letters. It's a way to organize people and it's a way to ensure that people actually write the letters and then put the stamps on them and put them in the mail. So. Um, there's all kinds of innovation like that that's happening, but it doesn't quite. Is that a technical innovation? I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Probably not. But technology is certainly making it possible. Yeah. No. It is interesting that what's old is new again. And there's some pretty good research I think that shows now that mail is really impactful because people don't get very much of it. And so if you package the mail in a certain way, it gets opened and it gets acted upon in a way that it wouldn't have 15 or 20 years ago. I think that's right. 
Yeah, why is texting so important? Is, is, that re is it helping us to reach people that we couldn't reach before? Why is that important? Absolutely, and because yeah. you know people um, between texting and iMessage or WhatsApp, um, people are uh, very responsive. Yeah, timely, all the all the things. So if something happens in the world, or Biden has a, or or Trump for that matter has a good debate, um, it's a way to say, hey, right in this moment, you know, yeah. you should give or you should volunteer. It doesn't sort of rely on you to turn out the lights, go to bed, wake up in the morning, open your inbox, and then, um, you know, get flooded with work emails. And you, it's a less less uh, competitive environment. It is. There's got to be something Pavlovian to it as well. It's amazing how I react to text messages as opposed to any anything else. It, like, I have to stop myself <laughs> sometimes because <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so immediate. We could just do it um, and get it done with. So, okay, so you've done many other things too, in your career, I'm wondering about your work now. And you and I have been talking a lot about, and I've been talking with your team about guaranteed income. And so I want to talk a bit about that because as you know, we're about to help launch uh, a fairly large guaranteed income pilot in Massachusetts, in Chelsea. Absolutely. And yeah, which is very exciting. Um, but I want, I want to talk with you about it because I want to, us to maybe explain why it's so exciting and maybe could be a part of the future of this country. And so how did you, how did you land on guaranteed income or the space? What happened that got you involved in this? Well, let me take a step back and um, explain for a second. So the, the, the organization that I co-chair, um, it's called the Economic Security Project is working to imagine a, uh, a structure for the economy that creates broad-based prosperity, where everybody has the, the freedom to pursue their, their dreams. Um, that's a very big picture, sort of idealistic way of putting it. And, but when we get down into the, to the meat of it, to the nitty gritty, the things that we work on are things like a guaranteed income campaign and um, anti-monopoly kind of policy, um, which, seem, which seem somewhat um, disparate when you look at them, but they both share in common this foundational idea that um, we, the American people, have control over our economy. The economy doesn't control us. It's not some system that we inherited. It doesn't work like physics. It, it instead is a human system that can and always is, in fact, designed to meet certain human ends. And we have designed the economy collectively over the past 30 or 40 years to, to really entrench some of the largest concentrations of wealth in our nation's history and to effectively freeze median incomes, the amount that most uh, households are making. Mm -hmm. And it's been to the detriment of Americans and the, the society that we have. Is, is that because... Are you, is that because money follows power and power decided we, we, we're going to centralize this? And probably not. I would imagine the intention was not to centralize it to such a degree that what's happening outside of power and where, where most of the dollars are. I, I, well, ta tell me more about what you're saying, but it, it feels like what happened is that we centralized power to such an extent that the money just followed it without a clear path for what we wanted the country to look like? Uh, so my understanding, you know, my take's a little bit, a little bit different than that. It's, yeah. um, you know, there's this idea of uh, kind of unfettered or unstructured markets as being um, the best way to produce abundance, which is a pretty new idea, actually. I mean, it sounds a bit like liberalism, but Adam Smith himself wouldn't have agreed with the fundamental ideas. And in fact, you know, wrote specifically about why that, that's not, not quite right. But this idea that markets uh, exist in some pristine state um, and that government or centralized power, I think is what you're, you mean there, intervenes in them. That's well, and about, also that's... Com companies, right? Like, mm -hmm. sure. Right? There's yeah. a lot of companies centralized in big, or it's a lot of power centralized in big companies as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so so I think that 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 idea that that the the problem is the centralization of power and that markets work otherwise just fine is relatively new. And so my my take on this is that we are always making design decisions as a people about how the economy should work. I mean, you can see it in everything from um, uh, the way we structure taxation to what we invest in, whether it's healthcare or parks, public investment. Uh, excuse me, public education um, or roads, how we um, decide to create competitive environments or not. There are always these design decisions that are that are being made now. They were made 50 years ago. They were made 100 years before that. And mm. um, we have we have control and power over them. And so the 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 work towards a guaranteed income is the attempt to create a a moment, a policy moment, a movement moment, where we say, hey, we actually have the power to eradicate poverty in the United States today by creating an income floor. And we can choose to do that or we can choose not to do that, but let's stare straight in the face that that, that power um, exists. And, and um, I, I think that we should, it's a, it's a movement to, create a floor that provides a, a stable structure economically for every family in the country. It's not so much money that it means nobody's going to have to work or that everybody's just going to put their feet up and play video games or whatever everyone's so afraid of. But it is, you know, even as something that seems as, as modest to many as $500 a month can be a, a, a transformative amount of money when families um, are struggling to, uh, to make ends meet. And why? Why, why is $500 such a game changer for so many families? I mean, the reality is that the incomes in the country, um, median incomes are flat over the past few decades. And the, you know, the stat that's often uh, referred to is that a third of countries, of individuals before the pandemic couldn't afford an, uh, an emergency expense of $400. So even the before we got into COVID times, a significant, a significant portion of the of the country is um, working hard because unemployment was below five percent, and yet still not having enough to provide for the basics. And and you know if you live in in any really almost any major American city right now, you you see this, even if you make significantly more money, the cost of housing has skyrocketed yeah. over the past few years. The cost of healthcare has gone up significantly. The cost of higher education has gone up significantly. So as costs have continued to uh, uh, increase, the incomes that people are being paid have, um, have barely budged. And that, you know, it, <laughs> the math in the aggregate isn't... Um, Hard to, hard to figure out. And so what that means from a lived perspective from the people that I talk to isn't that like there, it, it, it's that there's this kind of precarity that exists, not only for people who are below the poverty line, but for a lot of families. If you're a family of four making 40 grand a year, you you don't technically uh, fall below the poverty line. But, you know, if you have a, a major adverse event, whether you get laid off from a job, have a healthcare emergency, your, 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 your foundation is gone. You're, 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 you're in a precarious situation and you could be in poverty. So unfortunately that's the state of, um, of the lived economic experience for tens of millions of, of people. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and 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 also with the pandemic, it, it, we're we're seeing a growth in poverty, right? That's pretty extraordinary, and some not great predictions that it's going to take a while for us to dig back out of this new economy that is being created by the pandemic. It, it seems like there are a number of things happening in Washington where. Um, there are considerations for putting something into place that would be longer term than these one-time payments. And, and we can see the impact of these one-time payments and how they've been instrumental to families across the country. 
do you do you think that because of this crisis people will be more interested more quickly in thinking about something like guaranteed income as a program yeah. to help um, us move through and out of this um, what what has been created by this crisis yeah I think so I really do I think yeah. I, mean, I think I would say for two reasons I think um, you know, COVID has exposed so many things about our society that existed um, before the pandemic. But one of those things is the fragility that um, is a precarious economic life that most Americans have. And so when unemployment skyrocketed um, uh, in the spring and early summer, you had um, tens of millions of Americans, I mean, historically, unprecedented number of people who needed unemployment insurance at one time. And yet the, the evidence shows that many of them, um, uh, it took some time for them to get it at all. So there was a sense of uh, just like you're, again, you know, one adverse event, well, all of a sudden, you know, just about every American had an adverse event and the ones who were um, on the bottom from an income perspective, had a much, much more challenging um, uh, terrain to, uh, to uh, put food on the table. So that's one reason that I think that um, there's just a sense of, a greater sense of the precarity that exists. The second is we did send out uh, checks to tens of millions of Americans um, in the late spring and um, the IRS did it, the Social Security Administration did it. And um, it was wildly efficient yeah. and successful. Right. You know, you saw some scattered reports of um, some people uh, getting delayed checks or uh, some folks uh, who had recently passed away, you know, uh, uh, getting a check. Yep, that happened. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, if, if it's 0.1% of people had uh, that experience, then 99 Nine got uh, had a positive experience. Most people got this money through direct deposit. S uh, some got it through a physical check in the mail. But we went um, from mid-March having no income support to a couple months later having um, a very a significant cash infusion and done in a very efficient way. So we effectively proved overnight that we could have a guaranteed income logistically in the country. And then on the first point, um, we, I, I think COVID very much um, exposed the fact that we need, we need it to not, 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 I mean, for so many different reasons, but the, one of the, the, the biggest of which is to provide stability to people through um, these difficult economic yeah. times. Like actually the ability to take a deep breath and say, okay, I can rely on this as I think about the other things that I'm going to do in order to make sure that I can feed my family and that we can stay in our home. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, mm -hmm. I think it's super critical. So, you know, so one of the things we think about at the Shaw Foundation is the current supports that are in place for families and who are living in poverty or in um, circumstances that, are, you know, are, are, very vulnerable, and uh, you know when I when I met you and we started thinking more about guaranteed income, it, it, I, I was you know I did think about how efficient that is. Where you you look at some of the government programs like the SNAP program or other programs that you know where SNAP being the new um, uh, food stamps, mm -hmm. and it's I mean the amount of money it takes to run a program like that. Right, like you have to. There's all kinds of a, a. You have to. You have to apply. You have to be accepted. There's all kinds of analysis that's constantly doing being done on your income to figure out whether or not you have mm -hmm. this, you know, amount or or and it shifts based on you know whether or not you get paid more money or less money, and there's a lot of humans involved in, mm -hmm. in that as well as technology. And it, if I compare that to, just giving people cash. And right in Snap, right? I, I get I get a card, and I can go to certain stores, and then mm -hmm. on the shelves sit certain products that were negotiated by big companies with the government, and I have permission to purchase those. When I have cash, I can to go downstairs to my local bodega 
and buy whatever I want mm-hmm. and ensure that it's what my family will eat and um, and probably have, you know, other, I can think about how I'm going to spend it. Like the number, like the, the dollar amounts don't change based on stores knowing how and when to market to me because they know I just got my SNAP payment, you know, in the mail mm-hmm. and so, or loaded onto my card. And so I, I and, and, and so this kind of brings me back to technology and this notion that we're probably leaving a bunch of money on the table right now with current supports. And mm-hmm. it probably wouldn't be very hard. You just kind of gave a great example of this to just hand out cash. Mm-hmm. What are, are, you know, do what do you, what do you, how do you think this will play out? And I know you have a couple of different ways of thinking about how the country might pay for a program like this. Um, because obviously the supports that are already in place are really important to mm-hmm. helping people um, live. So how, mm-hmm. I mean, can you look into the future and see like how, if you could just transform it all, would you leave everything else the way it is? And would you find new money for guaranteed income? Would you shift the balance of how current supports are laid out? How do you think about it? And what do you think are the mm-hmm. right steps for the government t- to take to get there? That's interesting. And, um, you know, in your description of the way SNAP works, you sort of brought us back to that um, one of those early answers that I was giving or one of those earlier points in our conversation where we we're talking about trust. Yeah. You know, right. the reason that there are all of those restrictions on, on what you can spend SNAP money on is largely because of a lot of concern, um, paranoia, mostly on the right, but some on the left too that um, people are going to waste the money, yeah. that they are, that you can't trust people to um, spend it on the right things, and that um, those who are in power, who are, you know, disproportionately do skew older, whiter, more male, ha- have a sense of like, what are the right things to spend, whether it's SNAP money or other money on, and what are the wrong things um, to do so. So that's a, that's a, that's still very real and active, and I think a big, um, reason for some of those restrictions. Now, SNAP as a program is um, dollar for dollar massively effective at uh, getting uh, families money and specifically when they need it. When you experience um, an adverse event and uh, need to put money, excuse me, need to put food on the table and need to have the money to do so, then SNAP um, provides that. So um, I would like to see a, a lot more flexibility in those uh, funds that are provided. So I'm with you on that. But I also think, and this gets to this, I think the second half of, of your question, I think that uh, the best way to do a guaranteed income would be to, to have it dovetail with the existing um, uh, government programs that exist. So there's SNAP, there's there are housing vouchers, there um, are Medicaid benefits, there are, our safety net has largely been under assault for several decades, but these things do do exist, even if they are um, even if they are um, uh, smaller proportionally mm. than they were historically. Um, but I wouldn't cash them in to pay for a guaranteed income. I'd put a guaranteed income beside them as a way of providing um, that kind of foundation of, uh, of of security. And because, by the way, when I, I think at least when I'm talking about a guaranteed income. I'm talking about something on the order of magnitude of $500 a month mm-hmm. to families making uh, uh, less than uh, the median income. So that's pretty different from $1,000 a month to everyone, which is a more traditional kind of UBI, right. universal basic income. But the difference really matters. Like what I'm, you know, a guaranteed income that is a, a bit more modest and that goes to the people who need it. It's about providing that foundation of, of security, which doesn't mean when you get, you know, when you get laid off from a job, you know, most people need a lot more than $500 a month. Uh, you need the right. SNAP benefits. You need the other pieces of the, of the um, puzzle to be able to get back up, up on your, on your feet. So I, uh, I think the way to do this is to is to tie them together. On the financing point, a lot depends on the size and who gets it. You know, there are small ways to do it. There are big ways to do it. In the short term, you know, most of the, if not all of the COVID uh, uh, stimulus package has been financed through um, 
through debt through debt financing. When the rates of borrowing are less than a single percentage point and the emergency is this high, I think there's been a consensus again on the right and the left that that is an appropriate um, way to um, to fund this. Uh, so I think in, if we're talking about COVID relief and a guaranteed income for the next uh, year or two, I, I would expect that uh, just as they're debating about um, uh, what to put in this stimulus package right now in Washington, that much of that will be uh, paid for by adding to the debt. Mm-hmm. I think in the long term, it can be a mix. Um, the debt is there um, to be used uh if needed and i think we we should raise taxes on the um wealthiest americans those rates are at um very very low levels by historic um by historic standards so uh i think that i mean i wrote this in the book that i published on this topic a couple of years ago uh and did all the math in all the different directions and um i think it uh i, I think asking the wealthiest, to be honest, people like you and me who have done very well because of the structure of the economy to pay a fair share um, is is more than reasonable and creates a kind of abundance that uh, will create the society I want to live in. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. For the long term. Yeah, and and so how do you? Um, what's the tipping point on this? Do you think? Do you think it it takes the one percent of the one percent to really lean on, in on this and get behind it? Um, is it, is it, do you think it comes from a more grassroots sort of effort comprehensively? Um, what do you think tips the scales on this so that, is, is it, you know, kind of putting the government, putting forth a system that people can really trust where, you know, not, there's not much friction between dollars coming out of taxes and going straight into the pockets of, you know, underserved Americans? What, what, it, what, what, tip, what tips the scales on this, do you think? I think we may be living in that moment right now. You know, it's so it's 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 uh, it's always difficult to tell in the midst of things, but um, I think that there's a real um, demand for more ca- cash support um, mm-hmm. and income support. Uh, you see Trump tweeting about it. You see Nancy Pelosi uh, and other you know uh, House Democrats in favor of it. There is this kind of of um, area of agreement that cash was um, very effective in the spring at helping people and um, yeah. uh, would be effective in the future. So I think that is important. And I also think that we could structure this in a way that says, hey, we're going to give, uh, we're, we're going to make investments here so that families receive payments every quarter, every three months until this crisis ends. Mm-hmm. And you can define that by going below an unemployment level. Um, for instance. And then when the next crisis occurs, we're just, we're going to have it automatically kick back in just like any of these other benefits do and uh, have people receive guaranteed income in that, uh, in that period. I think there's a lot of interest in that as a kind of consensus position. I think it's viable. I think it's doable. You know, former fed economist, Claudia Sam has written extensively on this and, um, I was even talking about the role of the Fed in, partic- in potentially uh, providing this uh, this support just a, last week uh, in the New York Times. So I think that there's a there's a, there are the the at least the broad there's the, the frameworks for a broad agreement um, that would create a guaranteed income in uh, through the end of this crisis and in the next. I obviously think that we should have a guaranteed income for the long term for all the stability reasons that I um, was articulating. Uh, and I also realize, you know, um, just like social security, and a lot of other major American programs, the idea that you're just going to wave a wand and have it perfectly right off the bat is uh, unlikely. And instead you're uh, likely going to create a foundation and build of it, uh, build, yeah. build on that. Which is sort of part of what you're doing by creating these pilots around the country and organizing mayors who see the value in this sort of approach. Um, you're, you're helping to run programs and organize evidence um, in favor of widening this out. And so I'm wondering what sort of evidence are you looking for? You know, what, it, what is going to um, 
drive momentum in this direction. And in particular, something I don't know, you and I haven't talked about this, um, but we keep wondering about this as we move into this program in Chelsea, is I, I would imagine that this impacts people physically too, to mm. be able to sigh a deep breath, to know that there's something else that you can count on on a regular basis, mm-hmm. it probably affects you, your mental health also, which we know COVID is wreaking havoc with. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as people are mm-hmm. so stressed out and anxious um, during this crisis. Yeah. And so I, I know I know we're going to look at that in the study around um, Chelsea, but is what are the different points of evidence that different pilots are looking for to help demonstrate that this would be an effective strategy? Well, I mean, there are, so there are now um, multiple p- pilots running across the country, and the one that you all are, um, you know, very uh, generously uh, helping to fund in Chelsea, I think, is going to add to the 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 experiences, the evidence, the stories that tell um, that you know that that come together to to tell the effects of what a guaranteed income can do. Um, the thing about the evidence is that. Uh, different people want to see different things. Mm. Uh, there were these huge guaranteed income studies in the late 1970s in the United States. This, mo- this, you know, we came very close to having a guaranteed income in the late 60s. Um, Nixon supported it. It passed the House, failed in the Senate. I won't give a long history lesson, but th- we have been here in some sense before, and there was a lot of interest in evidence and um, testing uh, then. And then similarly, you know, the largest cash transfer program that we um, have uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, similar to a guaranteed income is now through the tax code called the Earned Income Tax Credit, which has been very extensively studied. So there's a lot of evidence. And the thing that's really interesting is when you look at it is that different people look for different things. So the folks who are more distrustful tend to look for evidence of work. You know, what, what happened if you just give people money, did they sit at home? Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out they, they don't really. Uh, you know, you see folks who are 64 and on the edge of retirement, uh, retiring a couple months early, or you'll see students who are in school staying in school longer. But, uh, but you don't see the kind of workforce effects that um, – a lot of economists would tell you are inevitable in in, um, in the studies. In fact, with the earned income tax rate, it works a little bit differently. But you see people working a little bit more because it's a it's a cash transfer program that sort of tops you up. So that's one thing. Uh, but uh, you know that that itself is inscribed in a values framework that you know the the good uh, you know you're looking at uh, whether giving people cash cause people to work or not work. Other people are looking at health outcomes. So you see up in Alaska where um, they have a permanent fund dividend, which is a, a cash transfer program. You could think of it as a mini guaranteed income to everybody who lives in Alaska. You see um, positive health effects on birth weights and babies. In other EITC research, you see people uh, having positive uh, health effects, particularly um, children and families that get more money. Kids stay in school longer. So... I could go through a long list of the, the evidence and the research, but I guess what I'm getting at is I think we already have a good bit of it. I'd welcome more. I think it's great to have more. Um, but I also think that more evidence is not necessarily on its own going to win the day on this issue. It's going to have to be, I think, a kind of um, moral and ethical commitment to eradicate poverty mm-hmm. and a belief that um, just technically that it, 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 you know, the operationally, logistically, it can be done. Those to me are the biggest, um, the biggest things that, that need to, uh, that need, need to happen. And that's why I think the pilots are so important and powerful because it suddenly stops being this thing that you think about in theory, you know, a lot of people, how many meals have I had with people who say, Oh, well, my uncle would waste the money. You know, everybody goes to the worst person in their family right. out of concern. Right. It, it right. switches from that to the stories of, you know, hardworking people. And I mean, in Stockton, California, they've had a guaranteed income for uh, over a hundred people um, for some time now. And you hear stories that are, are um, heartbreaking and, and inspiring. And in some, in some cases, in most cases, actually sort of, 
prosaic. You know, you ask people, yeah. well, what are you spending the money on? Rent. What are you spending the money on? Groceries. You know, there's like a, there's a, a kind of back to the basics uh, yeah. kind of uh, uh, stuff. And then you hear other things too about, you know, a parent who hasn't been able to take, this was pre-COVID, but take their kids to the movies ever because of, you know, the, the disposable income. You hear sort of more human kinds of stories like uh, like that or, you know, being able to afford a laptop for distance learning in COVID times that um, that are uh, that pull on the 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 heartstrings um, as well. So that, I think, is the long term real impact of these pilots um, uh, more so than the evidence per se. Yeah, I think that's that's such a great point, and I think you're right. If 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 this all comes down to humans and uh, human intention, then what we really need is for it to be happening proximate to all of us, and to mm-hmm. you know, I think for us, that's certainly to to look so deeply into issues of um, food access and housing, all created by, but maybe more not created by, perpetuated by the COVID crisis, it's interesting how much more bought in people are because you really need your heart to be in the game and not just your head to see what a difference it can make in people's lives. And um, to know that, you know, you with your tax dollars could impact someone so dramatically and lift them up in a way that really just lifts up everything around you. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you're right. I think you're right, and I, I think it's I think it's amazing that the mayors for guaranteed income is expanding to include mayors from every state, because it, that Absolutely. really, yeah, and that's the energy and the you know momentum and all of these underlying things that actually cause change. That you know you perpetuated Facebook perpetuated you used tools to perpetuate uh, during Obama's campaign for presidency, but that's really the thing that yeah. will probably drive this to the, to the next level. And local leaders, just one other thing on that. I think local leaders are often the, the closest to the problems that people experience and, um, and also the most pragmatic, you know, they don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the, of the good and sort mm-hmm. of say, Hey, you know, this, this is the, the, the scale of this emergency is real. We can help. And, um, uh, we can we can do it in a in a way that affirms people's dignity and, and freedom to um, uh, choose their own choose their own paths and a guaranteed income I think is uniquely suited to that. That's right. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this, and um, this was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks for all you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Chris Hughes. To learn more about Chris's work, you can visit economicsecurityproject.com. And to learn more about guaragi income, go to mayorsforagi.org. We at the Shaw Foundation are excited to see the results of a guaranteed income program that will launch in Chelsea, Mass. in November. You can learn more about that by going to our website, shawfoundation.org. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.